1: There's a lot of things going on. And in particular, we are seeing, Tim, a lot of individuals, institutions working with sectors and segments of the U.S. to encourage vaccine participation. And our next guest definitely has some thoughts on that.
0: Yeah, Rhett Buttle is the founder of Public Private Strategies, also senior fellow at the Aspen Institute, joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Rhett, Carol and I talk a lot about how well when it comes to COVID we talk a lot about everything when it comes to COVID but two things that I've been been focused on as the US vaccination effort has has done really well. One is how do we get you know, I keep referring to it as like the last mile, right? How do we get those people vaccinated who aren't being proactive about making appointments? And then also, what does it look like if we do have to get that booster shot? And this is the type of thing that we have to do every single year to prevent uh, little outbreaks of, of the pandemic. So what is the right way for, for companies to approach this? Like, is this the flu shot like we get at work now? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. And you're right, employers of all sizes have a role to play. You know, we've specifically
2: launched an effort focused on small businesses. And what we know from research is that, you know, as you're talking about vaccine hesitant populations, Messengers are everything. And so really, you know, this is about meeting the consumer where it's at. In this case, it's about meeting um, each American where it's at. And we really think that employers, and in particular small businesses, have a role as a trusted institution in really encouraging people to get their COVID vaccine.
1: Well, tell us specifically about this initiatives uh, initiative that you got underway, Rhett, Rhett, uh, Rhett, excuse me, the Reimagine Main Street Initiative. What is it about? What are you looking to do And what is it that's holding small businesses, particularly those maybe of color, of, you know, minority small businesses that maybe are preventing workers from getting the vaccine? Is it that they don't want to or that it's just difficult for them to get the time to do it?
2: Absolutely. So we launched this initiative about a year ago when COVID-19 broke out to really make sure that small business owners and in particular business owners of color were at the center of our recovery. And so we've been working on research and, and policymaker Uh, advocacy. And now we've added a new leg to this campaign, which is really using small employers as a vehicle to get information out. Because small business owners are some of the most trusted institutions in our country. They're ranked number two, according to Gallup. And quite frankly, the people who work for them trust them. And as you talked about, you know, particularly in communities of color, a lot of folks are unsure about the vaccine. Some of that is because of deep racism in our country and, and rightfully so. But we know just how important this vaccine is to not only our public health, but getting our economy um, open again. And it's not uncommon, right, to see employers. we see employers do unique stuff around the flu vaccine. Um, in this case, you know, for this first-time effort, it's really important to get these Main Street businesses engaged in these communities. Their workers turn to them, their communities uh, look and see, you know, what what small business owners have to say about issues. And so we think they have a new search. And so in addition to providing education tools and resources, we've launched a Vaccine uh, Leaders Pledge program for business owners to sign up. And we've curtailed information and resources to small business owners who want to talk to their employees and their communities about why this is important to not only getting you know, public health back, but quite frankly, to getting our economy
0: fully reopen. I think it's one thing for, for people to trust their employer and understand that the vaccine is the right thing to do. But it's an entirely different thing to get on their phone, schedule that appointment at a time that they're not at work, and then also schedule that, that follow up appointment as well. So how do you make it as easy as possible for somebody who hasn't been able to get a vaccine yet uh, to do it?
2: Well, and I think that's where we see, you know, this is this role of the employer coming in. And so we've seen it, employers doing really neat things. There's a, an amazing hair salon in Ohio who's working to actually book their uh, customers uh, for vaccine appointments when they come into the salon. That's one example of an above and beyond effort. But as an employer, it's also really important to be able to create that space for your employees to get educated, but also letting them know that maybe you're going to give them paid time off when they go in to get their vaccine and give them paid time off to recover so they don't feel the pressure of necessarily having to miss work and the burden that comes with that as an extra incentive to make sure that they get vaccinated.
1: Hey, Rhett, how big of a problem do you think it is among the small business community in terms of their workers or their business owners not going out and getting the vaccine uh, specifically? Or is it more that you're just thinking about the communities around them?
2: I think it's two reasons. You know, one is because of this trusted status that I'm talking about. You know, we're living in an interesting time where a lot of people don't don't necessarily trust media, they don't trust the government, but they do trust their employers in particular, they trust small business, so we think they're important. But also half of Americans work for small business owners and actually about 100 million Americans' financial lives in some cases depend on a small business. So they're a really important channel for getting information out and touching uh, touching individuals. And so that's really why we've chosen this channel in
0: particular as a way to get information out. How do you think about areas outside of the US? That was the other thing that Carol and I talk about all the time is is how this, the mm-hmm. pandemic is, is Look, we we did we have not done a great job in the United States overall, but when it comes to vaccinations We are certainly leading the world right now, but it's not the same story in the vast majority of the world Yeah, before I you know worked outside government I actually had the privilege of serving at the Department of
2: Health and Human Services and I did a lot of work on Ebola And you know early on one of the, the reasons we responded so quickly to the Ebola problem in Africa is Because we knew that our world is interconnected right and that is so important for especially business today and so, you know, this is a global issue. And, you know, while we're, while we're making great progress here in the United States, I'm encouraged by the Biden administration's efforts to rejoin COVAX, to rejoin the World Health Organization, because this is really a global problem. And it doesn't stop, you know, a, a virus like this uh, sees no borders, no boundaries, right? And so we really have to think about a global approach. And so right now we're focused on, you know, getting everyone vaccinated at home. And then at the same time, because we can walk and, you know, chew bubble gum at the same time, we're working on building our credibility back across the world to help to right. the virus as well.
1: Well, listen, it's a reminder of small businesses. They play a crucial role in communities. It's where conversations happen. And you do think about especially something like the vaccine, getting a message out, how productive that can be, those small business owners in particular. Rhett Buttle, thank you so much. Founder of Public Private Strategies. It's a consulting firm. Uh, he's also senior fellow at the Aspen Institute. Rhett joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Writing for Bloomberg Business Week this week, Bloomberg Opinion columnist Liam Denning, who takes a look at the future of energy from really, Tim, a management perspective. It's a great business school case study. It's looking at Elon Musk, of course, the CEO of Tesla, and Darren Woods, his counterpart at ExxonMobil. And safe to say, I got to tell you, I had to actually look up the name of ExxonMobil CEO because I didn't remember that, that's who was Maybe he it. should
0: be tweeting more about Dogecoin.
1: <laughs> or maybe or maybe not. Uh, <laughs> or just worrying about the future of energy. Anyway, this story is the remarks for the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week. And joining us with more Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber on the Access Line in Brooklyn and Bloomberg Opinion energy mining and commodities columnist Liam Denning. He's on the phone in New York. Joel, let's start with you though. I love this. It really is a case study of two very different CEOs.
3: Yeah, and I had the same reaction when I was reading it. It was like Darren, who, who? and and um for, for the most part, investors have kind of felt the same way. I think, but but I think um you know one of the reasons that we are really into this is like look like earning earning season upon us and Tesla versus Exxon. Can you like imagine two different corporate stories or leadership styles? And what I thought um, Liam did a really good job of hitting on was like, you know, for the most part, one is just really ran on faith. And obviously that's more Tesla, while Exxon has been known for this real uh, doggedness on on numbers. And yet it, one is um, having a completely different version of reality than the other over the past long haul. And, and this year to date, which I'm sure we'll talk about, has been a little bit different. But but Liam, how did you ultimately settle on um, putting these two leaders in the spotlight as, as sort of... Opposite forces, if you will.
4: I think it's just because we're at a, a really interesting moment for, for both of them. So you, you remember last year, um, Exxon's market cap shot up like a factor of seven, uh, went way past Exxon's. Um, and, you know, as you may recall, there were a flurry of stories about that and how it symbolized the transition from, you know, the oil age to the electric age and that sort of thing. But I think it's it's interesting because the way I think about it is, you know, if you go back a few years, Exxon was the most valuable company in the world. It could kind of do no wrong. Um, and investors had this kind of rock solid belief in it. And here we are, you know, just a few short years later in early 2021. Um, Exxon is, you know, it's been through some troubling times. It's run pretty much the same as it always has been, but it 's lost that kind of uh, belief from investors, whereas Tesla, you know, despite everything it does that you think would shake belief, um, just has this kind of fanatical devotion on the part of investors so I' just always an interesting way of looking at these two companies opposite ends of the energy business
1: it's really interesting and i thought man this would be great to like just sit down with a bunch of people like we are doing now and just talk about it like you do wonder because both liam are optimistic long term and how can that be possible can it be possible that they both have at least in the somewhat longer term you know optimistic futures or is that impossible
4: i think it's impossible you know there is one viewpoint that says well look the energy transition will take time and these Both of these companies can certainly make money for some period. But I think when you look at their core belief systems, they're just very different. I mean, you know, Bloomberg NEF, our own in-house forecasters, you know, they're pretty bullish on electric vehicles. But even they see it as taking a little while, um, maybe into the middle of the the 2030s, to see, like, serious market penetration. Elon Musk sees it happening much quicker than that. You look at ExxonMobil... Um, they're more in the, it will take time camp, we can develop new businesses, that sort of thing. I just think the the, the, um, the, the sheer aggressiveness of each view makes them incompatible. You know, one, one of these is going to work out to be true, but not both.
0: It does seem like the money right now is on Tesla, though. It, it's it's hard to imagine a world where fossil fuels and a company that really is, is focused on fossil fuels uh, ends up being the one that survives, right?
4: Uh, I think longer term, you know, fossil fuels are, are going to uh, peak and decline, absolutely. Um, I think it's a question of degree. You know, um, Exxon has suffered mainly because it made some really bad tactical errors, um, you know, stretching all the way back to about a decade ago when it bought this very expensive Gas business, where it ended up writing off quite a lot of it at the end of last year, um, and there have been other mistakes. Um, I think where it where it gets a little unbelievable is if you look at Tesla. I mean, clearly there is a lot of money flowing into clean tech right now, and there is a bright future for that business. But you know, you look at Tesla; it's made about a billion dollars of profit over the last six quarters. It's valued at like seven hundred billion dollars. Um, has the market got a bit ahead of itself on Tesla? I would say yes.
3: Well, that kind of speaks to you know how Exxon specifically has performed this year year today, uh, Liam, and and that number actually really jumped out to me. Um, so talk about like why why an Exxon might be able to continue to perform in the in the shorter term, while while as in the long run, we can might still the market might be right to be bullish on Tesla.
4: Yeah, I think in the short term, what Exxon is doing, it's, it's a couple of things. One is that it's just that the oil price has recovered a bit from the from the COVID pandemic. So that's kind of lifted all oil companies. I think the other thing is Exxon has, you know, it, it, Exxon was kind of aloof for the longest time. I mean, I think I mentioned in the piece that um, Darren Woods made, um, made headlines just for showing up on an earnings call.
1: <laughs> Ouch. Yesterday. Right. Burned. Um,
4: uh, and and they 've actually had to listen, you know they 've actually had activists show up and had to engage with them, and so they have um, they 've adjusted their stance they've they 've reined in spending they 've started acknowledging that there is actually an energy transition, and they' they 're potentially going to start businesses but look at that so they're they 're coming back partly because the oil price is coming back, but partly because they seem to have acknowledged their past um, mistakes with Tesla there is there is um there right. is the core story of the energy transition and that's that's right of course um but it's also a function of the fact that we are we are in a moment in markets where that kind of long term vision thing uh, is meeting, you know, very low interest rates, and you, and you do get some fantastic valuations.
1: Well, we're definitely at a point where there's disruption in this industry. There's still a lot of cars, though, on the road that are, you know, gas guzzlers. And at the same time, we had the Tesla story over the weekend, you know, with the car crash killing two, no one appeared to be dri- appeared to be driving, and it's just a reminder that it's not also an easy or just path forward uh, without some speed bumps along the way, certainly for something like Tesla. Joel Weber, Liam Denning, thank you so much. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes, Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Well, the developed world taking care of the developing world when it comes to COVID and vaccine distribution, that's something that just last month we talked about with Nobel laureate and Columbia University professor Joseph Stiglitz. Check it out.
5: The developing countries, particularly in emerging markets, are uh, not uh... on track to have the kind of uh... light at the end of the tunnel that we're beginning to see in the united states uh... we're getting vaccinated uh... and there are many many countries as we document around the world that have not had a single vaccine they just can't get access
1: It's a gap in terms of getting to that vaccine. We're certainly seeing that play out around the world. Writing about vaccine inequality in his weekly column, Bloomberg New Economy Editorial Director Andy Brown. Andy with us on the phone in New York City, uh, at our bureau here in New York City, I should say. So Andy, come on in on this. This was something Joseph Stieglitz, Nobel Laureate, very passionate about, a lot of other people. And you just put it so eloquently in your weekly column. Um, Tell us about this.
5: Yeah, well, the the head of the World Health Organization described this vaccine inequity as a catastrophic moral failure. And not just that, it makes absolutely no economic sense uh, at all. Um, The the International Chamber of Commerce did a study which showed that um, that, that vaccine nationalism, basically rich countries hogging all the vaccines, is going to cost the global economy something like 9.2 trillion dollars. Of which half the bird is going to be borne by by rich countries? They lose because you know the uh, mar- emerging markets that are grappling with the virus aren't buying their advanced manufacturing products like planes and cars, but also they can't supply manufacturing parts. And the crazy thing here is that uh, funding these multilateral efforts to vaccinate emerging economies uh, is going to cost a couple billion bucks, right? So you know, overall in the big picture, a, a, a drop in the bucket.
0: Hey, Andy, um, talk a little bit about what what this Bill Gates quote that you included, quote, the, the self-interested thing and the altruistic thing, making sure poor nations have access to vaccines are one and the same. Why do we have so much trouble seeing that? <laughs>
5: it's 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 a really good question you know i mean of course governments everywhere have an obligation to look after their own people um but you know you've got you we've got to the situation now where in the us and and large parts of europe We're well on our way now to herd immunity, which is generally, you know, calculated as around about 70 percent of the population with some kind of of, of immunity at best. uh, At the end of this year, we're looking at no more than emerging economies having inoculated no more than about 25 percent, one quarter of their population. And as Joe Stiglitz, you just heard him say, you know, there's a whole bunch of poor countries, uh, um, a couple dozen of them, where they haven't even gotten started you know and i mean and you, you you think of about this the, the, there's there's a stockpile right now in the u.s of 20 million of doses of, of astrazeneca apparently it's not even going to factor into joe biden's or the biden administration's vaccine rollout you know 20 million vaccines could 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 vaccinate the whole of cameroon you know or, <laughs> wow. or, or angola I mean, it just it would seem to me to be such an easy win for advancing, particularly the United States right now, to just lead a global campaign to inoculate the world. I mean, of course, it would be the morally the right thing to do. Um, and, you know, as I say, I mean, it, it's just a no-brainer uh, from, a, from an economic perspective.
1: Well, you know, and in reading your column, Andy, the thing is, all right, if you don't have a moral compass and you don't realize that it's the right thing to do to take care of the developing world. You know, just from an economic sense, and you mentioned this stat at the top of our segment here that you say that the Chamber of Commerce, the International Chamber of Congress, concluding an unequal allocation of injections, vaccine injections, could deprive the world economy of as much as $9.2 trillion. So even if you don't think it's the right thing to do, you've got to at some point logically understand that there is a huge economic cost, continued cost, if we don't get this right.
5: Yeah. And then the the other tragedy is, you know, with this this scare over blood, blood clots arising from AstraZeneca and now J&J, you know, in in America, it's basically a bit of a speed bump. Right. I mean, uh, J&J is about five percent, I think, of all the vaccines that are being sort of pushed into arms around the country. But this, this, this is, is in, in Africa, the, the news that, that J&J was being suspended in the U.S. was absolutely devastating. I mean, you know, there's already a huge amount of vaccine hesitancy in Africa for all kinds of complicated reasons. You know, partly because uh, a lot of people in Africa don't believe that Western pharmaceutical companies have their own best interests in heart at heart. And, you know, in country after country, you're seeing that this news is now sort of, you know, health authorities are persuading populations. got to get vaccinated. And this has just set these efforts all the way back to square one.
0: So, Andy, how do you envision this ending? Do we get to a point where the entire world gets inoculated and in a a reasonable time frame? Or or do we have pockets of uh, areas of the of the world like the United States that are somewhat vaccinated, even though, as you point out, we live in a world with porous borders and that kind of doesn't really matter?
5: Well, I hope not, because, um, you know, the, the old cliche, until everybody is safe, nobody is safe. And, and the, you know, the, there's a very realistic scenario where the emerging economies don't get vaccinated. You're going to start to get, of course, that, gives, that, that offers an opportunity for variants to take hold, um, to overwhelm the existing vaccines. Um, you know, and then you see the, you see, you'll see the pandemic r- roaring back, and of course then we'll be back again in another economic crisis. I mean, hence Bill Gates' uh, contention that mm. the self-interested thing and the altruistic thing are one and the same.
1: Yeah. And, you know, listen, we talked so much about the importance of AstraZeneca's vaccine, J&J's vaccine, and really being able to inoculate the world. And that has definitely been a major, major setback. Andy, thank you so much. Uh, Andy Brown, he's editorial director at Bloomberg New Economy on the phone in our New York City Bureau. But this is going to be a big thing. I mean, Joseph Stieglitz and many others, as Andy referenced, have talked about the importance that The virus knows no borders, and if we don't take care of the world at large, that's going to be a problem, and it's going to make COVID stay with us much longer. Not
0: only will it make COVID stay with us, a lot more lives will be lost, which is incredibly unfortunate, and Mm -hmm. what we see also is this uneven recovery around the world where uh, we won't get fully back to normal if there are areas of the world where there could be uh, mutant mutations forming, right? Right,
1: exactly. All right, well, certainly something we'll continue to watch. Check out Andy's columns and check out at New Econ Forum. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. One of the high flyers certainly of 2020, a different tone this year, uh, and in particular today, down about 7.2 percent. We're talking about Peloton, the stock selling off. Tim, after U.S. regulators warn consumers to stop using the exercise equipment maker's Tread Plus machine if there are young children or pets at home.
0: Amin Benside is technology and media analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence and joins us on the phone from New York City. Amin, thanks for for joining us about this. Um, you have a reaction to this latest news from. Peloton, uh, essentially saying um, that the regulator warning on the the Tread Plus—that's this machine that Carol was talking about—may not actually hurt the company's growth. Why not?
6: Thanks for having me. Yes, uh, I mean when we look at the you know the hardware uh, mix that Peloton has, over ninety percent of sales are still the bike, uh, not so much the treadmill or the treadmill Plus. So in the very near term, it doesn't look to us like this will have um, an impact. Uh, but on the other side, uh, when we uh, you know look at the legation standpoint, our legation analyst Holly Froom actually put a note this uh, morning discussing how an involuntary recall uh, for uh, the threat plus product is unlikely. So the regulators, you know, at this point of time, it's unlikely for them to force Peloton to stop uh, you know selling those products. So that's why we think, for the near term, the impact could be minimal.
1: What about though on the brand? How much of this is important in terms of how they react? to this particular thing uh, and this particular problem or potential problem. I mean, it's obviously a problem if it's happening, right? But I do wonder how the company addresses it, how that could ultimately affect their, their future consumer base or future growth.
6: Absolutely. That's a really good question because their focus for this year was also the treadmill because when you look at their mm-hmm. marketing span in the last few years was mostly for the bike, but they discussed, uh, you know, on their earnings calls how the treadmill, they're going to ship a lot of the marketing to the treadmill to, you know, to, to boost sales for the product. And they also have, um, the new lower price treadmill coming up in May. So yes, I agree that, uh, for the image of the brand, there could be an impact if these uh, incidents keep happening and more regulators uh, you know, join and you know, uh, warn about the product. But on the other hand, what the company is doing, to answer the second part of your question, uh, th- you know, uh, they announced they're also uh, updating their software to make it a little bit harder uh, for anyone who's not supposed to use the treadmill to use the treadmill, basically either have a passcode or something for that sort you know, so t- to, uh, to improve safety uh, for the product.
0: Do you see that being the solution here? Is it as simple as that? Is it an update to the hardware, or is this the type of thing that the company could get to the point where they are actually asking people to return this piece of equipment, which is incredibly hefty?
6: Yes. I mean, it's it's still unclear at this stage um, because we we still are not clear on, uh, you know— is this a Peloton specific issue, or is this, uh, you know, an overall treadmill? Because, as you know, treadmills are dangerous for children and uh, uh, and pets, so it's not something that uh, I think, in my opinion, is Peloton specific. But if the regulators find that if there is something in the hardware that make it Peloton specific, yes, it could be a risk. But to answer your question about is this enough from the software standpoint, um, again, if, if if it's overall, uh, you know, a treadmill uh, risk, I don't, I don't, I think yes, this is could be enough. But if more concerns keep happening in the future, um, I don't know if a recall is even uh, a possibility. And the company says they're not recalling or stopping themselves for the product.
1: Well, you know, I mean, I mean, like one thing I thought was interesting. I have a Peloton bike, and you've got to log in. And of course, a bike is not a treadmill; they're two different things. But. I... I'm trying to understand. I think if you have everything turned off, unless you have a kid logging in, like you can't necessarily get things going. Again, I don't have the treadmill, so I don't know logistically if you can just hit a power on button uh, and it's on, or if you just unplug it when you're done, do you kind of do away with the problem? I mean, treadmills have been around for a long time. Has this been a chronic consumer problem, or consumer, you know, I'm thinking of consumer reports, have they? reported on things like this in the past with other treadmills or like you said, is this something Peloton specific?
6: Yeah. I mean, um, so for the first part of your question, I think, yes, that's what the regulators are also suggesting, you know, just unplug it or have it in a different room, that's part of the problem, I mean, obviously. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, there is no passcode um, there. You still have to log, you know, the login is automatic if you have your password there, I would assume, because okay. I, I had a bike there uh, also, so uh, I remember it was just, you know, just like one button and sign up, but maybe people leave it on and they go and come back, that's the risk. But, but you know, I agree with if you unplug it or have more security measures, that could be enough. we're not sure. Yeah. Uh, the second part of your question for the recalls, uh, the note was put up, but again, our relegation analyst they showed that the, there were eighty recalls since two thousand uh, about the uh, exercise equipment, so they are relatively rare mm. uh, in this industry, and uh, so you know unless we see significant amount of this incident happening from peloton specific, um, it just it doesn't look like it's something um, you know uh, that happens often.
0: I mean, very briefly, we only have 15 seconds left. Other types of hardware that you expect Peloton has in its pipeline right now? Strength. Their focus is strength. When you look at
6: strength very quickly, mm-hmm. uh, 3% of their workouts were strength. Wow. Now it's 13% uh, last of last year and growing. So that right. is,
0: you know, that is their focus. So that's like a tonal type of machine.
6: Tunnel or like uh, maybe even a rower at high intensity huh. or anything focused uh, 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 in strength.
1: Okay. Listen, that's it. They're finding different revenue streams. That's what's pretty pretty remarkable that they pivoted off the bike into other things. Um, Amen, thank you so much. Amen, Ben Said, he's Bloomberg Intelligence Technology Analyst joining us on the phone in New York City. As we mentioned, Peloton shares just down about 7.2% as we speak. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week and this is Bloomberg Radio.
4: I'm my car.
5: Is the drive to the close. That punk the funky music will drive us till the dawn on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Alright, just about eleven minutes uh left in today's trading session, getting ready to wrap up the Monday trade. Our guest in the drive to the close is Vance Howard back with us, portfolio manager and CEO at Howard Capital Management uh, based in Georgia. And that's where we find him, Roswell, Georgia, to be exact. $3 billion in assets under management. Vance, uh, nice to have you back here on Bloomberg Radio, on Bloomberg Business Week. When you look at the markets, you think they're a bit overbought. How overbought and what does that mean in terms of a potential pullback?
7: Well, when we say overbought, Carol. Let's, let's be real clear. On a very, very short-term basis, meaning maybe one to two weeks, we do not see this market turning over at all. And, you know, our proprietary indicated the HCM buy line is positive, so any pullback we see is a buying opportunity. But on a technical basis, just for a one or two- So you're pullback,
5: a bull.
0: We're
7: absolutely <laughs> bullish. We're, we're not only bullish, we're real bullish. <laughs> we have been since the second week of uh, April yeah. of last year
0: so what derails this bullishness because we spent a lot of time talking today about the unequal distribution of the vaccine and how just because a pandemic ends in the united states doesn't mean that it's necessarily ending around the world and my concern there apart from loss of life is of course economic activity
1: And so timely that you brought that up tim because just crossing the bloomberg terminal the state department to caution against travel to about 80 percent of countries so mm-hmm. vance uh, as tim mentioned i mean a reminder that globally we're still in a tough place
7: Uh, Globally, we are, but you know the you know the vaccine's getting distributed very, very, very well in the United States. And by the way, that's a big testament to corporate America. They've been a big catalyst behind that. I think it's just been wonderful how fast they got the vaccine out and how fast they're getting it into people. I've already had one shot. I'll be getting my next one, my next shot next week. But. You know, and you see France over there is really struggling. I don't think that their corporate America has been quite as buttoned up or as strong as ours has. And I think that's why they've only got three or four percent of their people being vaccinated. So, you know, the U.S. just heads and tails above most other places.
0: But that creates some risks and and that creates some, you know, what a CFO would say, tailwinds. Right. Especially when it comes to the way that CFOs are thinking about the economy. Because this is a global economy that we live in. It doesn't matter if we're vaccinated here in the U.S. if other countries aren't. They're not right. going to reopen.
1: And if our suppliers in the developing world yeah. can't provide components that we need for production, it just slows everybody down.
0: Well, there's
7: no doubt it's going to be a slowdown, but we're opening up pretty quick. Even around the world, I think things are getting better. They're not getting worse. So, you know, net-net, I think it's a positive. And let's, let's face it, between China and the U.S., we're the two biggest economies out there, and it looks like China's opening up pretty good, too. I looked at their GDP. I mean, it was through the roof.
1: Hmm. So well, you, so you're not worried at all. You're not, <laughs> even though we did a story about global, you know, COVID cases coming up. I mean, you think the U.S. alone, and I know you also talked about China specifically too. Although I think China has had some trouble with vaccine rollout as well. Um, you know, you're not worried if China and the U.S. are going. You think everything's going to be fine?
7: I, I think we're going to work through it at a pretty good pace. I mean, do we have uh, bumps in the road? Yes, but. No matter we, whether we have a pandemic or not, there's always bumps in the road. There's always something you know around the world that we can point a finger to and say, "Oh, that's the reason the market's not." But there's going to work. bumps, but and then there's another
1: wave work. of COVID that causes shutdowns.
7: That that could that could be a concern, but that's still it's not to the point. Now I'd be too concerned about another wave because even with the way, if we do have another wave, I don't think it's going to be as such a shock factor as the second wave was, and I think that was a pretty big one. But yeah, we're bullish, and I would be buying into this. And you hmm. know, I think six months, twelve months, eighteen months, I think you'd be happy you did.
0: Really. So, what, I mean, what are your what are your own targets for the end of the year?
7: Well, we don't have any targets, Tim. To be quite candid, but we do run a proprietary indicator. The HCM buy line is mathematically driven. It's all quantitatively driven, and I can tell you right now, as strong as the HCM buy line is going back over forty years, you got an eighty-two percent chance the market's going to be higher. So we know what the odds are. You got an eighty-two percent chance. You take that trade.
1: So I'm going to ask a question. I bet I know the answer. Tesla down four percent today. You like this name? Are you buying on this dip? Or would you be? We would.
7: We bought a whole bunch of Tesla about, uh, I guess, four weeks ago. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we're up about 18, 20 percent on that trade. We started buying into Tesla back then. Uh, You know, again, ask yourself, 12, 24 months from now, do you think Tesla is going to be higher? I think it is.
1: I don't know. I mean, there's a lot more new entrants when it comes to the EV market. We've done story after story every day that this year, 2021, is going to be, whether it's Volkswagen, whether it's Mercedes, whether it's BMW, whether, you know, you talk about it, even, you know, all along kind of the cost structure of cars, you see, see a lot new uh entries into the marketplace you don't think that's going to give tesla a run for their money
7: it, it could it very well could but look at this though you're, you're buying one other product that, that's not that's a big part of tesla and that's a guy called elon musk i mean the guy made a billion bucks with bitcoin with tesla i mean this guy's not sitting on his hands he's probably one of the most brilliant innovators we have since edison so and then steve jobs so i mean you're also you're, you're putting your money behind him and i tell you the guy's a young guy he's a smart guy i mean think about what this guy can come up with in the next 12 to
0: 24 months does it concern? Does today's news concern you at all?
7: No, it, it doesn't concern me. I mean, I, this guy's already got a big foothold in the marketplace. He's 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 going to drive traffic to Tesla. He's going to come up with something probably pretty interesting and innovative, and probably in the near term.
0: Right. But just the fact that the the idea that it could damage the brand, you're not concerned about that. No, I'm not. I'm not concerned about that
1: uh any other names that you're finding interesting like we're going to have united after the closing bell today we had delta last week i mean listen you know this is going to be potentially one of the big recovery stories and we know this is a group that just got decimated you know all of their business or 90 percent of their business shut down in 2020 uh what do you make of maybe the airlines is that an area where you would commit some new money or have they had their bounce back already no
7: no no. i think they're going to move higher like i said we're bullish we think things are going to open up we're not afraid of the world right now um you know, we're watching a lot of great stocks that have been basing. Like, look at Amazon. Amazon's been basing for nine months, and it's, on the, it's just very, very close to having a 52-week breakout, which is always a positive thing. You know, Microsoft just broke out to a 52-week high. I and mean, you're getting a lot of stocks that are starting to break out. That's telling you one thing. You don't trade with emotion. You have to trade math like we do. So sit around and worry about the, about the virus all day. You, 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 I don't know what's going to happen. Nobody does, but I can tell you the odds are very, very high mathematically from the HCM buy line. This market's going higher.
0: Well, uh, <laughs> there it is. You are definitely bullish. OK, so I've asked you about if a, the virus could derail this. Is there anything else that you think could derail this? Because there's corporate taxes potentially that could go higher. We didn't see the market move significantly on that news a few weeks ago, which leads me to believe that either A, they don't think investors don't necessarily think it's going to happen, or B, um, it won't affect the company's bottom lines and earnings that much. Where do you fall when it comes to corporate taxes? Something to be concerned about?
7: But yeah, it is. It is. There's two things that concern us now. These are things that could drill. is higher taxes and, 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 and dramatically more regulation. Those are the two factors that could throw a monkey wrench in this whole process. Um, but what we're getting is a lot of talk out of Washington. I don't know how much of it's going to come reality because there's a point out there that you got to step back as a legislature and say, man, if I crush the economy, I'm probably not going to keep my job and get reelected. So they're going to have to kind of walk a tightrope on what do you do with regulation and taxes to try to stay, you know, keep it between the lines and not swerve off and
1: wreck. Hey, there's a lot of ETFs that you like. Just got about 45, 50 seconds left here. What's the play here for the EDF uh, world for you? You know, I was on CNBC the other day, and, and we were talking about... Oh, oh my, my God, God you're <laughs> done. I can't even believe you did that. <laughs> <laughs> really? I
0: didn't hear him. That's okay. I didn't hear oh. what he said. I didn't hear what you said. It's wow, okay.
1: Wow, Van. Yeah, Van,
0: sorry. We had a technical you issue. You were doing so
1: well, and then... <laughs> oh.
7: Well, whatever. You know, we started buying DVY back in the first week or the the first week of uh, April of last year. and It's been a great trade. But I was asked the question, though, by another, by being interviewed. They said, well, don't you think it's top heavy? Don't you think it's too high? You know, new new highs become new highs, become new highs, become new highs. That's how things double. So nothing can double unless it's hitting a new high the whole way up. So when you look at the epicenter stocks, which DVY holds a whole bunch of high dividend epicenter stocks, there's just so many things that are working right now.
1: All right, we're going to leave it on that note. Vance Howard, thank you so much. Chief Executive Officer, Portfolio Manager. Howard, Capital Manager, $3 billion in assets under management. A uh, definite bull there. And we still like him, even though he mentioned a competitor. I mean, we like our competitors. I know yeah. a lot of people there. A lot of my friends are there. But still, know your audience. <laughs>